You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. The way I look at technology use is not just at one stage in life, it's definitely across life stages. Uh, And my research tends to be motivated by what I experience or observe in my daily life. You know, something that I've experienced myself or something that I observe from others around me. Um, I didn't grow up with technology, but today, like many of us, technology has dominated many aspects of my life. Uh, There are moments when I reflect upon the presence of technology in my life across different life stages. And then I realize that I have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, You know, I got my first desktop computer when I was in college. Uh, I typed my undergrad thesis on it, but due to the slow internet at the time, I didn't use a computer to conduct any research needed for my thesis. So I still went to the library, I used the books and other documents in the library for the research. And there was no such thing as just Googling something. But now I see my daughter learn both online and offline. And recently I helped her with a research project. Um, You know, the information, the knowledge is just at your fingertip. When I look at when I first joined the workforce, technology was mainly a tool of productivity. So without the ubiquitous connectivity back then, the line between work and personal life used to be clear and straightforward. And now, if you look at our devices, they are more and more affordable, more and more portable and powerful. So we've started to enjoy the flexibility and convenience brought about by the capability to cross the boundaries between work and family or personal life domains at any time, anywhere. But at the same time, this new way of accessing work communications, this new way of uh, responding to work demands kind of change how we define work. And it's not all rosy. It's not all about the flexibility and convenience. So when the line between work and personal life is blurred, our work, of course, has made inroads into our family life. It's just like wherever we go, work follows. So this may make us feel that we're wearing an electronic leash. I find it fascinating that, you know, we can no longer summarize what technology has done to our professional and personal life in a binary manner. It's not just good and bad, beneficial or detrimental. It's it's complex. And all the effects of technology kind of sum up to, it depends, depends on how we use it, it depends on the circumstances. So just over the time, over the years, I see kind of this love-hate relationship with technology develops and I see there's so many different factors will come into play and technology plays different roles in our life, no matter whether you look at it at one point in time or across life stages. And depending on people's different needs, experiences, and capabilities, there's just no simple recipe to make a one-size-fits-all kind of solution. If you compare 2022 to 10 years ago, what is one of the most notable changes that society has undergone? For me, the answer would be social media. 
and specifically just how integrated technology is throughout our everyday lives. We literally have a computer at our fingertips at any instance, and that computer grants us access to the entire world and its knowledge. On today's show, I'm talking with Associate Professor Adela Chen from CSU's Department of Computer Information Systems to learn more about how social media use relates to early childhood experiences and also how the boundaries between our professional and personal lives are blurred by the use of technology at work and at home. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Adela, just first things first, thank you so much for coming on the show, agreeing to talk to me today. I have been wanting to talk to somebody about this topic for a long time, so I'm glad that I finally found you. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. It's it's a great opportunity for me to share my research, and I'm always excited and passionate about doing that. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Hannah. Everything you just said, it's such a nuanced conversation, and I think you know, in the introduction you gave, so many of us can relate to so many different points of the story that you told. What it has me just initially thinking about is, you know, kids today, Gen Z even, are digital natives. They grew up and this is all that they knew. And I, fortunately, I think fortunately, am part of the last generation of millennials who I still remember what it was like before the dot-com boom and, you know, World Wide Web and all of those things. And so, I that was a defining moment I think in the course of my life so far. Like I'm never going to forget what it was like. You probably around 2005-2006 for me, that was the year of like this is when the internet started and we had a home computer and I had I had one in my parents' office and what that was like. And so it's something that we carry we're going to be carrying with us for the rest of our lives now cuz that's where the world yeah. is today. So I I just am so excited to get into some of the more of some of the things that you mentioned in that story. So let's start with, um, you know, I I saw you sent me a a Wall Street Journal article that you were featured in. um, And the article was talking about how um, your research that relates to social media use and early childhood experiences. So what's the connection between the two? And I know you used attachment theory, which yes, is a psychological theory in, in that research. So, mm-hmm. so tell us, what's the connection between social media use and childhood experiences and attachment theory? Sure. Um, I'll probably start with attachment theory. Um, we, attachment theory, first of all, it describes one specific dispositional trait. So we know personality traits, right? We may be more familiar with the big five personality traits, such as uh, agreeableness, extroversion, conscientiousness, openness, and uh, neuroticism. So we're probably more familiar with these. And collectively, people use these five traits or more traits to describe an individual's personality. And, um, you know, this kind of offers a picture of where the individual lands on each of these dimensions, these dispositional dimensions. 
then um, there are of course other personality traits out there, and attachment is one of those personality traits. Um, it's about people's tendency towards interpersonal relationship. Briefly speaking, um, it focuses on how people view and approach interpersonal relationships. While some people may be described as needy, clingy, and others may prefer to be left alone, and they tend to avoid the social interaction. So you can tell people kind of land on different,、um, you know,、uh, uh, if you view attachment、uh, as a dimension, and there are actually are two dimensions to it: attachment anxiety and attachment. Avoidance. So you know, people may land on different、uh, different places on the continuum of those two dimensions,、um, and our attachment style or where we land on attachment dimensions of anxiety and avoidance is actually shaped by、uh, a particular history of attachment experiences. So、um, you know, we 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 have our earliest interactions with our primary caregiver, and based on that experience, we kind of internalize the experience, and that experience shapes the mental model that we later on formed. You know about interpersonal interaction, interpersonal relationship, and this mental model continues to guide our social behaviors and expectations throughout the lifespan. So, what happened early on in our life does have an impact on our later,、um, you know, our activities, our behaviors, our attitudes later on in our life. Um, infant attachment can be extended to adulthood because infants' attachment to their caregivers will be carried over to supportive others such as colleagues, friends, spouses, family members when we grow up. So, an individual's attachment style can be captured、um, along two dimensions: avoidance and anxiety. So attachment anxiety represents、um, the level to which we fear rejection or abandonment from others in time of need.、Um, usually, in people who are high on attachment anxiety, they tend to have low confidence about their self worth in a relationship. So,、uh, as a result of that, they tend to be more vigilant for signs of abandonment or rejection from others, and therefore they they tend to have an excessive need for closeness,、uh, and you know, closeness to others and approval from others. So this is one dimension, and the other dimension is attachment avoidance. And、that refers to the degree to which people fear interpersonal dependency and interpersonal intimacy.、Um, so usually, they do not trust other. You know, for people who are high on attendance avoidance, they 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 tend to distrust others' goodwill or capability to help them in time of need. So they are not so convinced of the value of social connection, social intimacy,、um, and for folks who are high on attachment avoidance, they tend to avoid getting close to others. Therefore, they have an excessive need for independence and self-reliance.
So in this study, I look at the connection between attachment styles to social media addiction. So we know social media is a platform designed and built just for social connection. That's the primary purpose of social media platform. So uh, when I first developed the study, I was really curious. I said, you know, this is social, uh, this is, uh, everything is about social. So I'm interested in, in finding out how people's tendency towards interpersonal relationship, the social connection with others would influence their social media use. Um, and in particular, this social media addiction is a kind of a problematic uh, form of social media use. So I'm kind of curious about the connection. And then I conducted a study uh, among um, college students. So the findings are interesting. And uh, from this study, I found that, you know, for people who are high on attachment anxiety, they tend to have a heightened need for relatedness, right? to be close to others, to be uh, associated with others. And also they tend to have a heightened need for self-presentation. In social media platforms provide a lot of features and tools for people to present themselves in a positive light. So, um, however, you know, the connection we have on social media uh, sometimes may not be may not be deep relationships, right? You see what's going on in people's life, but you are not part of that. So from this perspective, sometimes the connection can be superficial. Just this part will make people want more. They come back for more. And that's how social media can get them hooked. And we also see that for people who are high on attachment avoidance, you know, the folks who tend to distrust others' goodwill, others' capability, they tend to uh, prefer to be left alone. So for those people, um, the need for relatedness and the need for self-presentation are just not as high as for folks who are high on attachment anxiety. So we found um, this negative relationship between uh, attachment avoidance and social media addiction. So in the sense that uh, their, their, um, their low level of uh, need for relatedness and self-presentation can kind of protect them from being addicted to social media in the sense. Since they have this excessive need for independence and self-reliance, they want to prove that they are, they are competent, they are capable of anything. They don't need others to help them in time of need. Because on social media platforms, you're the boss. You decide what you want to express, what you want to post, what you want to browse, and what you want to say, how you want to respond to others' posts. So you're the boss. And this... Um, this kind of, you know, it's not like in-person uh, interaction, right? You have, to, uh, you have to consider that you need to uh, behave in a socially acceptable manner. But with social media, uh, sometimes just this uh, anonymity will help you uh, to do whatever you want without uh, a lot of concerns that you would have in a face-to-face -face setting. So autonomy is there. We have this both positive and negative effects. So 
in, in the end, uh, we, we found that people who are high on anxiety uh, tend to develop addiction. Yeah. yeah. I just, what I'm thinking, the part that I want to underscore from everything that you just said, and please correct me if I get mm-hmm. this wrong, is that going back to what you were saying with early childhood experiences, um, people who, you know, craved that attention from their caregivers when mm-hmm. they were kids and maybe they they didn't get the level of attention that they needed mm-hmm. um, and now they're older and they feel like they're missing something because mm-hmm. of that those are the people that you find are more more likely to become addicted to social media and I just I, I find that fascinating because it goes back to what you were saying of these are the same people who when they get older, they look towards their friends and their colleagues to find and fill that void of attention and care that they lacked from their primary caregiver as a kid. It's almost like social media is stepping in as a person in their life exactly. that fills that void. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Hannah, based on what you said earlier about their earlier uh, childhood experiences, I think it, it can go both ways. So you may have, you know, when, when, you know, during that time, you may have a caregiver uh, who didn't consistently uh, give you love and care, right? And which may make you feel that you need to try really hard to impress them, to be related to them, to get approval from them so that you can get more consistent attention or care and love from them. And later on, uh, in, when you grow up, when you use social media, you may have those behaviors manifested in how you use social media. And of course, we may also have uh, caregivers who who totally ignored the child. And uh, that experience may later on make the child believe that, you know, others are not trustworthy. I should just rely on myself in time of need. And then for those people, they may develop uh, a different mental mode of interpersonal expectations, interpersonal relationships. So later on, when it comes to using social media, right, a tool for you to socialize, for you to manage your interpersonal relationships, your behaviors may be different from the first group. Yeah. So another area of your research that I I definitely want to make sure we talk about is what you were saying earlier in your introduction about the workplace and how uh, the the line between work and our personal lives is blurred Mm -hmm. in this just technology abundant space that we're in today. And so, so can you talk a little bit about some of your, your work that you've done with how technology use at work kind of filters into our personal lives? Sure. Um, I, I feel like my general view of life in general and technology in particular is I see, uh, you know, things are related, right? Just like the previous topic, what happened earlier in our, in our life during our childhood definitely would have an impact uh, on our life now. And I see work and life or work and personal life or family life, uh, they represent uh, two major spheres of our life. And those two major domains, they are connected as well. 
what happens in one domain definitely spills over to the other. Right? For example, after we have a good day at work, we come back home in a cheerful mood, and very likely our family can pick that up. Right? And on the contrary, after a long and rough day at work, we may not even want to talk after getting back home, and we may not have much patience with our children. And I believe our family members, you know, including our pets, can pick that up as well. Uh, so from this perspective, since technology is a tool of productivity at workplace, technology use, I believe, certainly produces impact on our personal life. You know, if at, at, uh, at macro level, the productivity gain or loss due to technology use will definitely translate into job performance, bonus, salary, promotion, and so on. So these, these resources we earn or produce at work will definitely benefit or influence our personal lives. At a more uh, granular level, right, the emotions felt during the use of technology, frustration, anxiety, joy, they will also be carried over to our personal life. Right? And now, if we take a closer look at the boundaries between work and personal life, uh, technology has made the boundaries increasingly blurred, for sure. And this leads to benefits and damages. Uh, you know, when the gate is open for work communications to enter your personal life, you may find yourself constantly reprioritizing and responding to work demands delivered through various communication technologies we have these days, phone calls, emails, text messages, uh, <clears throat> video conferencing, and so on. And, you know, there can be benefits. For example, you know, um, we, we are not fully occupied all the time uh, when we are <clears throat> at work or when we are in our personal lives. So with the Slack resources available, we can definitely get more done. If we need to respond to some work-related communications during after hours, if we have Slack resources, we can definitely do that, especially if by doing so, we bring closure to some lingering thoughts or uh, concerns about some work-related stuff. And that is great because we bring closure to that and then we can just move on with whatever we have lined up in our personal life without thinking about the lingering, you know, the, the, the lingering issue we have at work. So that is is good we have the closure there but it's not always like that right there there can be damages as well uh, we, we can also feel irritable tense stressed emotionally exhausted from these intruding work demands um, but also you know if you spend time dealing with these work related communications or tasks in your personal life um, definitely you will have uh, fewer resources right less time um, lower level of energy to to meet your non-work demands so now with fewer resources you still need to feel, fulfill your non-work demands and definitely you will feel rushed you will feel uh, irritable and stressed when you have to do that. 
Um, and, and also, if you feel like, like that you are in an environment uh, filled with technology and work connectivity at your fingertips, uh, you probably feel that you remain preoccupied with work. Uh, it becomes increasingly difficult for you to psychologically disconnect from work. So here, we talk about psychologically disconnect. Um, you know, with, with uh, the technologies these days being so capable, we don't have to be in a workplace to complete our work. But not being in the workplace doesn't mean that we do not think about work. Uh, but while you're at the dinner table or you're at uh, somebody's birthday party, if you have to think about work, I, I bet that's, that's not a good feeling. <laughs> you probably feel that you're, you're occupied with work. And uh, this, can make, this can make people feel drained or uh, emotionally exhausted. And they, they feel like there's never a disconnection from their work. Um, and it's really um, it's detrimental to their, uh, you know, recharge, you know, getting ready for the next day. It is, 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 uh, has negative impact on people's well-being because your, your recovery from work is not complete in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm someone who I consider myself as having pretty decent work-life balance and boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that is because, you know, the clock hits a certain time after five o'clock mm-hmm. where I just refuse to look at anything work-related. And that's been really good for me. But even I you know, I experienced what you were saying of it's especially now with the pandemic and so many of us are working remotely from home. My desk is in my living room. (laughs) As you can, as you can see, my desk is here. And so even when I turn everything off, I still see it. Mm -hmm. I still think about it because it's, it's right there in front of me. And even like my subconscious just betrays me all the time. Like I, I will wake up in the middle of the night because I had a thought about work while I was sleeping. And it's not something, of course, that I intended. It's my subconscious doing it to Mm -hmm. me while I'm sleeping. And so it's, it's, you know, we had Gwen Fisher from psychology Mm -hmm. on our podcast a few weeks ago, and that was all about uh, the future trends of work and what Mm -hmm. work is going to look like for older adults. And so what you're saying just reminds me of the conversation Gwen and I were having about the four day work week and how, mm-hmm. how popular that idea is becoming and how it's kind of gaining ground. Because I think about myself, yeah. even if I had a three day weekend, I feel like I would be able to adequately disconnect from work. Like you're talking about, mm-hmm. like, I think you need that first day to really just like De- decompress and then by the third day you have fully done that that's true yeah you've fully done that so you can come back refreshed the next day and so yeah everything you're saying I totally <laughs> totally get I totally get it <laughs> you know when I when I think about when I first joined the workforce at the time the line between work and personal life was really clear and you had this ritual right you feel like you know I at the time I still remember I um I rode uh the shuttle bus to work 
So the bus ride was the transition, and then just sitting in the bus, I still remember I was going through the tasks I had for that day, and the same thing, you know, on the bus ride back home, I was going through the same transition period, thinking about、mm, just concluding, you know, what I have done for that day, and then what plan I had. Uh, with my family or friends, and、um, <clears throat> but I feel working from home definitely takes that part away. And the other day, I was chatting with a friend,、uh, and he was like, you know, I used to drive to work, and although that was not a short commute, but during the commute, you know, you kind of you, you complete the transition from work to personal life or the other way around. But now with everything being shoved under. The same roof, just like you said. You know, I I, I used to work、um, at the dining table、uh, during the entire during the entire pandemic, you know, for two years. So it's really hard when you see the table you used to associate with totally non work stuff. Now it's covered by. The files, you know, the papers, and you know your notebook, your your computer. It's really hard to make the separation anymore. So, so one thing to kind of tie up these conversations in a nice little bow.、Mm-hmm. Um, so, going back to the first question with social media use and maybe the overuse of social media,、mm-hmm. um, and now you know this conversation of the workplace and work life boundaries. Can you make any predictions about how these things, how these technology use behaviors, might affect our overall, you know, future health and well-being in the long term? You know, say I continue to be addicted to social media, or say I continue to have really bad boundaries and I work until nine p.m. What 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 can you make predictions on with my my health of the future? Well, I think that's a, that's a very good question.、Uh, first, I would say、uh, I would say for sure, yes, technology use or our patterns of technology use will certainly affect us in the long run. If you look at each episode of use, right, and each episode may mean relatively little of its own. Right? And、uh, do I check email the first thing after I wake up? Do I check email the last thing before I go to bed? You know, if it's just one or twice, once or twice, I don't think it will make a big difference. However, over time, how we prioritize and reprioritize our Uh, how we prioritize and reprioritize our work and non-work commitments,、uh, our morning routines, for example, checking email as the first thing after you wake up, our bedtime routines, for example, checking email as the last thing、uh, before you go to bed. All these things will build up. They will. Have enormous impacts on our productivity, our health, our well-being, our relationship with our family and friends, and etc. Because when your use of technology, or when a certain pattern of technology use becomes habitual, it will have huge impact. On multiple aspects of our life, because you know the impact in one aspect. May radiate out to other aspects of our life as well when it becomes habitual. So for sure, that's how the long-term impact will will come about.、Um, but you know, if if、um, 
I'm asked to predict what kind of effects. I think it will depend uh, on many different factors. What technology, how it is used, the individual differences, some environmental factors. You know, for example, like individual differences. Some people prefer、um, segmenting their different life domains. Work is work, and personal lives are separate. They prefer to draw a clear line between the two. But others tend to like,、um, you know, to blend、uh, activities from both domains to、uh, optimize their productivity if they wish. So there are a lot of personal differences as well. I think it all kind of depends on what we try to achieve using what technology for what type of tasks. Um, and also, what type of person we are, I just feel just like a, a lot of factors may come into this equation to predict whether we'll have roughly positive or negative consequences down the road.、Um, But you know, I you you mentioned、uh, the future of work conversation that you had with Gwen.、Uh, so I totally agree with that. You know what we observe、um, in terms of the impact of technology is not only at individual level,、uh, but also the impact can be observed at organizational or even societal levels. So now we are talking about the future of work, right? Work used to be confined to a certain time period, for example, eight a.m. to five p.m., and it's confined to a certain location. It's the workplace, and now it it needs to be redefined. And during this,、um, you know, after the pandemic, after、um, this hybrid work mode that people、uh, experience or are still experiencing due to the pandemic, in many organizations they are considering、uh, retaining the hybrid work mode as an option to provide employees with more flexibility and more control over where, when, and how they work. So I think you know whether the hybrid work modes, in particular,、uh, or other practices that we observed, you know, that involves the use of technology in general, what kind of impact they will have? I think it has a lot to do with、um, you know the individual situations as well. So we we see you know definitely for the hybrid work mode,、um, it benefits some individual who would appreciate the flexibility they have、uh, due to this hybrid work mode. But for others.、Um, We also heard complain about mental health, right? Just this this feeling of、uh, isolated,、uh, not being able to connect with colleagues in person, not being able to brainstorm and innovate, come up with new ideas in a face to face setting.、Uh, some people will complain about that. So I think it's really a complex situation. <laughs> Oh yes, it's very complex. I I could talk to you about this all day. <laughs> I I have so many thoughts and opinions about the way that we work,、um, but just just one based on what you just said is the collaboration piece does not go as well when you try to do it through a video conference、mm-hmm. or a chat box or something like that. Like you are missing. All of the interpersonal relationships, all of the nonverbal social cues of communicating with someone, 
And, and that, that really hinders the process of trying to do these big, you know, brainstorming strategy sessions, whatever you want to call it when you collaborate with your colleagues. And so I could see, I could see both. I, I personally really enjoy the hybrid environment. I like being able to have the option to go into the office, but then I can also be here at my home if I wanted to be as well. And that was something that Gwen and I talked about in the, our episode too, is that younger people, you know, I'm 27, so I'm a younger millennial. Um, younger people are, are going to demand that in the future. That is going to become a norm for our future work environments that we have to have that kind of flexibility because these young kids, yeah. they're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna live their life just working all the time. They refuse. <laughs> exactly. I definitely see that. Um, you know, uh, young people appreciate, uh, you know, the flexibility that technology provides, and they also value uh, work-life balance. So I, I would definitely see, you know, how technology can be leveraged in, uh, in providing those. This last question is the one that I ask everyone who comes on the show, which is what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective in computer information systems? <laughs> I... I I feel most excited for, uh, you know, for the future of aging research is mainly about the increasing attention to healthy aging that we see today. Um, and, you know, from, from my, uh, from my area, um, see technology has dominated many aspects of our life, no matter the stage in life. A lot of attention has been paid to technologies in the workplace, uh, which I can understand because clearly technology use at the workplace has this productivity related implications. But you know, what about people who are no longer in the workforce? I think more research is really needed to understand how technology can help our aging population and how older adults use technology. There, there's really no simple answer to questions like these because what works for one group may not work for the other. And the differentiation may not be based on or solely based on age groups. So it kind of boils down to a deep understanding of the target population, their needs, their limitations, their experiences. Um, and also, it will be exciting to see how the latest technologies, such as artificial intelligence and machine learning, can contribute to healthy learning. We have a lot of research or discussion around how these technologies, the latest technologies, can be used at workplace in uh, enhancing productivity. But I would love to see how those technologies can help uh, our, our aging population um, to enhance the efficiency and effectiveness of how they go about in their daily life. Um, and I, I, as I said earlier, I believe this is not a simple equation, right? There's no simple recipe for you to figure out. So it will be um, exciting to be involved in a cross-disciplinary longitudinal study this is kind of my dream study as a scholar. Um, I, I wish to study the impact of technology use on people across their life stages. 
not you know longitudinal in terms of、uh, three months or a year. It's much longer. And if you know there there's opportunity to be able to follow the participants through their life stages to have a more complete view of the change evolution of their needs, their wants, their limitations, their capabilities, and how life experience shape all these factors. I think that will be fascinating, and I believe those different perspectives will definitely help paint a more complete picture of what healthy aging looks like or should look like. Adela, thank you. That was such a thoughtful response, and just the entire conversation. I just appreciate all the knowledge that you brought to it. I really enjoyed talking to you about this topic. So, thank you so much for coming on today and talking with me. My pleasure, and thank you for inviting me, Hannah. And this is a great opportunity to share my research and my passion about research. And I really appreciate having this opportunity to do it through this platform. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging, and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.